0: Here from God's word, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26, 27, and 30 through 32. So let's start in Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. Let's pray before we read the word of the Lord. Father, I pray that you'd search each heart and mind that is struggling with certain attitudes or actions of anger that should not be there. And you would help us to put off the unrighteous anger that does not please you, but do what you desire and what you require to put on the mind of Christ, who was holy and perfect and angry with all the mercy and forgiveness that came with that. You, you must give us, Lord, something that we cannot do in our own, a righteous anger and a holy zeal for you and for those that are uh, in sin and in pain. I pray, Father, that you would use our hands and use our lips to be a blessing and not a curse to those around us, that you would help us, God, to put on the righteousness of Jesus, the love, patience, and forgiveness that our Savior has both given to us and shown us so clearly. And now as we read your word, Holy Spirit, please apply it to our hearts and our relationships, including our relationship with you and with those in this church and all those outside these walls as well. We pray this, Jesus, in your powerful and precious name, Jesus Christ, amen. Ephesians four, twenty-six and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Verses 30 through 32. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. That's just a bunch of stuff saying... All the angry stuff, words and attitudes, put them off and be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Chapter five, verses one and two. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Amen. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but this is an eternal word from the Lord which will never fail. The gospel of Jesus to us today about the theme of anger. And we're continuing the series on the image of God, what it means to be made in the likeness and image of God. As the Bible says in Genesis 1, God made us male and female in his image, in his likeness. And Paul picks up on that theme here in Ephesians 4. So today we're looking at getting good and angry as we follow the image of our creator and savior. Has anyone in here ever been to a 12-step program, a maybe recovery program? Well, I want you to picture that we're in that setting now because we need to be honest with each other, as is the case in recovery programs, and so I want to start off just by saying hi. My name is Brad. I have a problem. Not only does this not work, but I have another problem. I did. That's okay. That's all right. We might need our old-fashioned clickers back there on the the screen. So back to the the old-fashioned PowerPoint. Thanks. All right. Let's try that again. I have a problem. I get angry. I have an anger problem. And in my younger years, I didn't think I had a problem with anger. In fact, my high school friends would ask me occasionally, do you ever get angry? And I thought, sure I do. But I couldn't think of any instances with people in public that I would get angry. After college, after having some non-angry years, so I thought, I got married. That helped. That helped. Um, 20 years ago, when we were newlyweds, we had our share of conflicts and arguments right in the beginning. And Shannon would say to me things like this. Stop saying you're disappointed. Stop saying you're frustrated. And just say you're angry, please. Just be honest. Just show me some intensity. Show me some passion. I was trying so hard to not be angry. But in my heart, there was apparently a problem. Because... One day, I I responded to her invitation to get angry, and I got so disappointed, you could say, in our argument that day that I stood up in our small seminary apartment. Yes, I was in seminary, trained to be a pastor. I ran across the kitchen and hurled myself into the solid wooden door leading outside. The door was closed, by the way. So as I fell to the ground, I said, there, is that angry enough for you? I don't want to hurt you, but... I'm crying out. I mean, I'm so frustrated. Look at me. I just want to hurt myself because I'm so angry. It was all built up. And I know what you're thinking. Oh, my. You were angry. And Pastor Brad, did you learn that from Jesus? Is that how Jesus taught you to be angry? And, of course, Paul says here in Ephesians 4.20, no. That's not the way you learn Christ. He says in verse 20, no, that's not the way you learn how to be angry. Paul says, I'll teach you the right way to be angry. First, you have to put off the old way of anger, the sinful way, and put on the righteous anger that God requires. This is the pattern that Paul teaches throughout his letters. How do Christians change? How do we become bitter and angry people who are sinning to become people who are following God's heart in all of these things? And so he says, first, put off, and he uses that metaphor of clothing. Put off the old, dirty clothes of your old anger, your old ways. And put on the clothing of Christ, the righteousness of Jesus, the new image that God is creating you deep inside your heart. True holiness and true righteousness, even when you're angry. He says your identity is that God has been angry at your sin, but he has forgiven you, sinner. And so now live out what you are. You are a forgiven sinner. So even in your anger, learn how to be angry like your father. Be a child of God. Who loved you and gave himself for you. Though he punished your sins, he adopted you and treated you with mercy. Child of God, Christian, this is Godly Anger Management 101. You will be tested on this material. I can guarantee you. God will probably test you on the subject of anger on a daily basis or a weekly basis, depending on your temperament. But let's first start class by defining what is anger. Because we all think we know what anger is, but... There are some misconceptions. Anger. I would say a brief definition would be it's resisting wrongs both with an attitude and actions. Resisting wrongs both in your attitudes and actions. And if you want to flesh it out a little bit more, you could say it's not just an emotion, but anger is a state of mind and heart that includes attitudes and actions that resists wrongs, confronts people, and wrestles with unmet desires or unfulfilled expectations. It's something that wells up in you, and usually you have thoughts or words or actions accompanying that where you are resisting something that you don't like, that you don't want, whether it's a person or an idea or even God himself. In the the Hebrew um, Bible, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, there are a couple words used for anger that uh, could be translated as, one, hot nostrils. Okay? Have you ever felt so angry that your nostrils just begin flaring? You know? and your ears begin steaming. That's the idea of like a raging bull who's, who's pawing the ground and about to run that matador over who's got the red cape saying, come on, come on. And he says, I'll, I'll come on. And he's, his ears are steaming. His nostrils are flaring. That's anger. The Hebrew also has another word just means burning. Like when your blood boils because you're so angry. You're just hot under the collar. Your blood pressure is rising. You're just hot with anger. These ideas, we we know because we talk about them in in similar ways. You know, someone exploded like a volcano and they just had this outburst and harsh words like lava just burning people around them. Or maybe you're one of the types that's a little bit slower in your anger and you, you let it build up like I did and you're like a pressure cooker. It's still getting really hot, but it takes a while before the lid blows off. Anger, hot anger, yelling, bulging veins in your neck, cursing, swinging your fist, a bat or maybe a gun around. Some people just blow up with anger. Other people approach it very differently. Some people's personalities are more cold when it comes to anger. They clam up. They don't blow up. They could bury the anger so deep for so long that it's like their heart is frozen. Relationships get icy. You just have cold stares. It's really just like a cold war. It might just be a small, almost imperceptible sigh of disgust with someone. Or they may never even know that you're angry with them. But you hold it in. But either way, anger... Is about war. Anger is like a propaganda smear campaign, saying, gossiping, and uh, rude things about people behind their backs. It's it's anger that is so easily triggered in people that they are walking around like a weapon of mass destruction, and everyone around them takes cover and finds a, a fallout shelter or has to tiptoe through the landmine of their anger to not upset them. Do you know anybody like that? Anger is war sarcasm It's like sniper fire, pinpointing right where it's going to hurt, and they zero in on your flaws, and sarcasm gets you right where it counts. Anger expresses itself in so many different forms as it stands against wrongs and people and unfulfilled expectations. Anger is often described by psychologists. If they're, if they're going to try to define it, they'll often say something that... Uh, sounds more like anger is a fluid or a gas. They'll say anger is an emotional state that can build up pressure and you have to sometimes just, what? Vent. Just let it out. Let let steam off. Get it off your chest. They talk about anger as if it's some substance, a fluid or a gas. And, And so this common advice is ventilate. Air it out. Talk about it. Scream about it. Vent your spleen. Go into a field and just scream at the top of your lungs where no one can hear you. Throw a tantrum into your pillow. Punch your pillow, punch the wall, punch the punching bag in the gym. Maybe that's a little safer for you. Go and work out in a wicked way and just wear yourself out. Get all that negative energy out. People will say, and I think that's better than obviously punching someone in the face as to getting getting the energy out. But it's really not going to solve the problem. It actually might just heighten your emotions and rehearse the anger that's inside of you. And anger is actually not a fluid or a gas or anything that we can just vent or let off our chest it does involve emotions and biology and high blood pressure and all that but let me say it again anger is a state of mind and a state of the heart that includes attitudes and actions that resists wrongs opposes people and wrestles with unmet desires proverbs 29:11 says a fool gives full vent to his anger or his spirit A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Does that mean he represses? Does that mean a wise person never talks about anger? No, that's not what it means. The Bible tells us how to deal properly with anger, but this verse tells us that a fool vents his anger. Screaming, cursing, yelling, that's reinforcing his anger. It's destroying relationships around him. No one wants to be around a person like that. But a woman who is wise doesn't vent her anger, but she repents of her anger. And she learns to reflect on her anger, holding back her first instincts and her animal impulses that just want to come out and say whatever. She learns to process and think and come up with a plan and a solution for reconciliation. Speaking of anger and fluid reminds me of something I need to get off my chest today. Um, Something that's happened in my home recently. I hope... You guys don't mind that I share this, but my kids have found all sorts of fun ways, like most kids do, to drink milk. Because we require milk in our home to be drunk, and so they've learned to sip it slowly or chug it quickly. But the classic milk drinking technique, of course, is the straw, right? And what happens when you take milk and a straw, and you put it in front of a kid, they begin drinking it, slurping it through the straw, but what else happens? Always. They blow bubbles, right? And the bubbles grow bigger and bigger. They overflow the rim of the milk and they begin popping on their nose and their eyelashes. It's so fun to blow bubbles in your milk. Well, something amazing just happened in our family. Eliana was given a soda stream, which is a soda maker. You can carbonate any sort of juices. and So she's been getting, you know, carbonating citrus juices and making homemade root beer, carbonated root beer, and just, you know, soda water if you just want to put some bubbles in your water. So I had this idea of the century, really. Okay, Let's carbonate our milk in our home to save our kids the trouble of blowing the bubbles into their own milk. I'll use the SodaStream to like professionally and mass-produce carbonated milk. And I can actually bring this idea to Wi-Fi because we get all these milks every week that the kids drink. So kids, you can save your breath and let me carbonate the milk for you. What do you think? I mean, just by your looks and the way that my family's talked to me about this idea doesn't tell me that you share my joy with this idea. And so it tells me something about anger. When I learned that no one wants me to blow bubbles from my straw into their milk, and even if I do it, you know, with the sanitary professional method of the soda stream, nobody wants me venting into their milk. Now, they'll do it all day long, and it's fun for them, but nobody wants to be vented upon, apparently. Everybody wants to vent their anger. Let me just tell you how I feel. Let me me just lay it all out there. Let me scream about it. But do you want people doing that to you? Nobody wants to be vented upon, but everybody wants to vent, supposedly. But that doesn't work because anger is not a fluid. It's not something that can be vented. It shouldn't be vented. Anger is a posture of warfare. When you express your anger in ungodly ways, it's it's a posture saying, I want to fight. I want to tell you that you're wrong and that I'm right and I'm not going to lose this battle. Don't vent your anger. That's what fools do. Learn to control your anger. Don't unleash it like an atomic bomb and destroy everything around you. Harness The power of your anger. Like an x-ray machine, you take the radiation and use it for something good. You look into your heart and you see what's going on in there. You take your anger and you say, God, lead me to humility. Because look at what I've become. Lead me to repentance. Lead me to understand what's going on in my heart and help me to trace the roots of my anger. So I can have true power and learn to control my anger. To put off ungodly anger. To put on righteousness When I'm angry. So, first, let's look at that dynamic that Paul teaches. First, we have to put on the ungodly things and put on the things of Christ if we're going to really change. Put off the deep, dirty, dark, devilish anger. That's what Paul teaches us here in Ephesians 4, verse 26 and 27. First, he says, put off anger. Let's read it together. Verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. There's a sinful side, a dark side of anger, a dirty side that must be put off. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And don't give the devil any opportunity. Let's talk about dirty anger for a minute. okay? There's a side of anger that's kind of shameful and dirty and and destructive. It's, It's not that clean anger that jesus taught us that's that's constructive and that is is truth but it's mixed with mercy and it builds people up and it has a concern for god's glory and for uh people's souls see our anger is often just dirty and dark and devilish and ephesians four eighteen and 19 talks about that when it says that our hearts in our sinful state are darkened in our understanding and we're alienated or separated from the life of god because we have ignorance in our minds due to the hardening of our hearts So our hearts are naturally hard towards people and towards God. That's why we're angry. That's why we sometimes just want to be alone. That's why we sometimes just want to insult someone and move on before they can get us back. We want to return evil for evil and insult for insults. And so Paul says, that's an anger that you need to put off. James uh, chapter 4 also speaks of this, this hardness of heart, this ignorance of mind, and the root cause of our Sinful anger is desires, James says. Listen to what James says. uh, And just answer these questions in your mind as James asks them of the Christians. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Think about what, what is causing you to quarrel and fight with people these days? You might say, well, somebody left the toilet seat up or someone stole from me or whatever. Okay, well, James doesn't give you that option of blaming it on someone else. He says this. What causes fights among you? Is it not that your passions... Are at war within you. And I don't think he's just talking about like you're having internal struggle. He's saying your passions are at war against God and other people, because that's how the rest of the passage goes on to describe it. Your passions and your desires are warring against other people. Anger is a form of warfare. You desire something and you do not have it, so you murder. Has anyone in here ever murdered before? Okay, we've had some murderers in our church. We have. Now, you might think, well, I haven't murdered, so. Moving on. Not, not quite yet. Hold on. Jesus said, if you're angry with someone in your heart and you think or say things that are insulting and belittling to them, you're, you're tearing down the image of God in them, then that's equivalent to murder in your heart. You wanted them to die. You, you just didn't say it or do it. You're thinking, I just wish they would die already. I just wish they would, you know, leave me alone forever. So he says... You you desire things and you don't have them, so you hate people for it. You're so angry because they won't give you what you want. He says, you covet. You secretly want something so bad you cannot obtain it. What is it that you want so badly right now and you just can't get it? It's causing you to be angry at people. They're not meeting your agenda or providing what you think you want and need. Paul um, James says, so... You covet and cannot obtain it, so you fight and quarrel. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So he's talking about selfish desires now. The things you're asking for sometimes are very selfish, and you just are mad because you're not getting them. James is pinpointing what is the root problem. That's, what's so wrong about the anger that Paul's telling us to put off? What's, what's so dirty about it? Well, it's, it's just selfish motives and desires. That's what's wrong with it. Our desires fuel our anger. We want something, we say to God, I need that, and then we demand it. You better give it to me or else I'll be angry and I'll do whatever, fill in the blank. The idol of self stands before God and other people and says, I must have what I want. My kingdom must come. My will must be done or else. So, we don't have what we desperately want, so we get angry. And how can we put this dirty side of anger off, this selfish side, which erupts in anger all the time. How do we overthrow this idol of self, which I I imagine myself sometimes as like a grown child. Sometimes I think, what am I doing? Why am I thinking these thought patterns? This is a childish way of thinking. I mean, picture yourself in your worst moments when you're angry and selfish. It's like you're a little child that maybe your parents have taken to Burger King. And you take one of those little cardboard Burger King crowns, put it on your head, and you go sit in your little car seat in the car, your little throne that you're in, and it's all about you. You ate your hamburger, you got your ice cream cone, but something made you mad, and you threw it on the ground in the car. You threw it on the floor. And then you start screaming, saying, I want another cone, but you've already left the parking lot, and your parents aren't about to turn around and give you another cone, but you demand what you want, and it's your fault that you threw it on the ground in the first place, but now you're angry at everyone else, and you think, I'm in charge here. I've got my crown on. I'm in my throne. I deserve another ice cream cone. Don't we act like that sometimes in life? And of course, not everything is that silly and petty. I mean, sometimes we're angry about real problems, injustices in the world, people dying around us. We have a right to be angry, but are we acting like a child or are we acting mature and after God's image that he's recreating us to be, um, having righteous anger? So how do we put off this dirty anger? Paul instructs us. He says, resist the devil. He says, have a short fuse and let your anger uh, only happen for a short time. But James gives us some more helpful information in chapter 4. And so I'm going to read another verse from James chapter 4. When he says, when you're this angry, draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. So you've got your, your, your cardboard crown. You're sitting on your little milk crate throne or your little car seat or whatever. You're sitting on your lazy boy chair. And you are feeling at the center of the universe. And you're angry because not everyone is meeting your needs or your demands. And then James tells us, okay, let me explain how you're going to get through this and actually begin maturing as a Christian. You need to humble yourself and get close to God. Come to his throne. Draw near to him. When you see God on his throne, it will put things in perspective. When you when you draw near to God, you will see that He is the Lord and you are not. He's the true King and you're not. He will begin teaching you and changing you and giving you wisdom to be angry in a proper way without sinning. He will teach you how to be clean in your anger. There's three things I, I can see from this idea of drawing near to God and humbling yourself before him so that he'll lift you up. The first thing I see is that if I humble myself before God, I recognize that God is God and I am not. That will take care of most of my anger. If I realize I'm not the one in charge of the universe or even my household or my church or my life, really. I'm not ultimately in charge. God is God and I'm not. I have no right to demand, but when I am hurt or frustrated or angry, I need to draw near to him with my tears, with my pain, with my everything and gain strength and gain perspective. Amen. I need to pray, I need to read, I need to reflect on the condition of my heart. Look at that x-ray of my heart from the, the mirror of the word and see what my true needs are versus what are just my wants or demands. I need to learn to pray once again, your will be done because you're God, your kingdom come, not mine. The second thing I think I learned from this idea of drawing near to God and humbling myself before his throne is that it also teaches me to humble myself before you. Everyone. In this room and everyone in the world, I I need to learn that I'm not God. Therefore, I don't stand above you. I can't try to manipulate you or make demands of you, and you don't exist to serve me. God is God, and I'm not. I'm not God over you. We're both made in God's image. James chapter 3 tells us that. Ephesians chapter 4 says we're made in God's image, and he's remaking us, trying to help us become more like Christ. And so when I look at other people, I see you and I are equals I'm not above you. I can't lord it over you. I can't take more than my fair share from you, whether it's time or energy or anything. I cannot establish my kingdom over you because the kingdom of Christ rules over all of us. And there's the third thing I, I, I learned from this, which is when I humble myself before God and come before his throne, that God actually helps me through you. It's not just that I'm not over you, but you're actually a helper to me. Because when I'm angry, I have people I can go to who are image bearers of God. They understand God's heart. They understand the sinful side of it as well. They can identify with me. and They can help me move beyond my anger. These people all around us are God's representatives and God's reflection so that you can see the heart of God of compassion and love and forgiveness and change to help you get through your anger. God is teaching me through you to find counsel from godly people who won't just listen to me gossip. But they'll say, wait a minute, hold on. We need to actually figure out a way to solve this problem and maybe be reconciled with that person. And sometimes God even humbles us through image bearers who are truly our enemies. People that have truly opposed us or stood against us. Billy Graham said it like this. Turn your critics into your coaches. The people that you really don't like. They can even teach you something about yourself. Because they bring out the worst in you, and that helps you to reflect and say, Why am I doing this? I'm just becoming like they are. I'm becoming the thing I say that I hate. And they can be a a reflection not just of you in your sin, but they can be a reflection of God to you to teach you to change. James says, as you begin humbling yourself before the true King, before his throne, James chapter 3, verse 13 says, You will learn the meekness of wisdom. I love that phrase, the meekness of wisdom. And you'll begin to do good things. You'll bear good fruit. Your anger will be productive anger, not destructive anger. The truly wise person learns to be meek. That doesn't mean um, you never speak up and stand up for yourself. Meekness is power under control. Power under control. Outburst of anger is power with no control. Showing that you're really weak because you have no self-control. Meekness is when you can control your anger and harness it and use it for good and not for evil. Put off the dark side of anger, the dirty side of anger. Paul says, let's think about this idea of the dark side of anger. He says, you can be angry at the wrong things in the wrong way, but you can also be angry at the wrong time. And that's what he's dealing with when he says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. He's talking about the timing of your anger. He says, don't let the shadows of night be a place where your anger can find a hiding place. You need to get rid of your anger before the sun sets, um, so to speak. Now, he literally says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. But the word anger is not exactly the same word that he just said when he says, put off sinful anger. And he's actually adding a little prefix to it, like he's supercharging the word anger. And he's making it sound more like uh intense anger or resentful anger or like wrath. So it's, it's kind of the same idea, but he's saying there's a certain type of anger that you just shouldn't go to bed when you feel that way until you've dealt with that problem. A certain way of anger that will eat you alive. It will cause so much stress in your heart and in your relationships. You should not let that go on for any amount of time. You should deal with it quickly and immediately. You should put it off. You should bury it. You should kill it. Because that version of anger is what turns into vengeance. It turns into long-term grudges. It stays with you like a fever for days or weeks, or if you have a real problem, for years. Some of my married friends have tried to take this verse literally, don't let the sun go down in your anger, and they try to actually live that out in their marriage. We found that kind of hard to do in our marriage, literally to never let the sun set before our anger is resolved. Because sometimes our arguments start after sunset. And if you ever move to the North Pole, there will be months where the sun never sets. So you've got to take this somewhat metaphorically. Okay? There's an image here that's saying, be quick about resolving your anger. Okay? Don't let your anger go on for too long. Um, one ancient writer said, let the day of your anger be the day of your reconciliation. Matthew 5 says it like this. If your brother has something against you, if you're angry or they're angry with you, leave your gift at the altar. And go and be reconciled first, and then come back and present your gift in worship to the Lord. So he's saying, if there's a problem between you and someone else, reconcile quickly. Before the sun goes down on your anger. My my wife and I, Shannon and I, have thought about this verse in uh, this sort of way. When we're angry with each other or in an argument, we can't always completely solve the problem 100% before we go to bed at night. Now, we usually try to get the bulk of it taken care of, and we try to say something loving to each other or some sort of loving act so that when we say goodnight and close our eyes, we're not, you know, afraid of the other person um, putting a pillow over our face or something. Like, we usually have a pretty good idea that I still love them, and they still love me, even if I have some sort of, you know, uh, tension, and we have to resolve it. So what we started to do years ago was we said, if... Um, If we can't figure it out tonight, and and sometimes you're just exhausted after all the discussion, all the argument. It's just late. It's like, you know, 2 in the morning. You don't want to continue to do this when you're starting to get delirious. So you say, time out. Let's schedule an appointment, whether tomorrow or at our earliest possible convenience. And let's finish this discussion. And so we we set it in our calendar. I think that the intention is there. The spirit of the law is there that we're going to resolve the anger as quickly as we can. There's, There's dirty anger. There's dark anger. And if we have unresolved anger, it, it invites evil. And that's the third point that Paul's saying we should put off devilish anger. He literally says don't give the devil an opportunity. Or literally, don't give the devil a place. That's it's just the basic word, place. Don't give the devil a place in your life. Uh, the, the New International Version translates it as don't give the devil a foothold where he sticks his foot in the door and you, you can't close it on him. Because your anger has opened up the door of opportunity for for Satan and for evil to come in and manipulate and have its way with you. It's basically saying, if I'm not willing to deal with my anger, I'm going to let it just go on and on unresolved. You're, you're basically spreading a, a place at your table to say to Satan, here, come come and dine with me. I'm going to dine with the devil. Or, or you, you got a bunk bed set up right there in your room. And you say, hey, we'll just share the space together from now on. Because I'm not going to repent of this anger. And I'm going to not forgive this person. And I will not stand for what they did to me. It's just going to burn me up, and I'm not letting it go. You're giving the devil a place in your life. This is exactly what Paul says in Ephesians 4.19. He says, us, we sinners, have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every type of impurity. Our hearts have become hard. We begin feeling and not thinking. So sensuality, greed, impurity, instead of thinking, we have lost the ability to think clearly, and our mind is clouded with the rage of anger. We're ignorant because of the hardness of our heart. Remember that? He says, this is what happens. It's been happening from the beginning. Remember the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. God told them, do not eat of the tree, of the knowledge of good and evil. Satan said, did God really say that? Now, he wasn't using logic. He was actually twisting God's words, and he was, he was preying on their emotions at this point. How does this feel? Does it feel good for someone to tell you what to do? Oh, God thinks he can just tell you not to eat of the street. He's holding something back from you. He's trying to keep you from the greatest power and pleasure you'll ever experience. So what do you want? How do you feel? Go with your senses. It looks good. It will taste good. So take it. Do it. He's not using logic. He's using their feelings. He's saying to them, you're in control. You can do what you want. Don't let God control your life or anyone else tell you what to do for that matter. Anger against God is devilish. If you say, God, I don't like that you've given me these rules. I don't like the life you've given me. I don't like the people you've put in my life. That's, that's devilish. That's evil. You say, I don't want to open the door to that person in my life. I want to keep the door shut in their face. I do not want this person being a part of my life. Well, guess what? The devil's already in the door. You might be keeping everybody else out, you think, but he's already there with that sort of angry attitude and unforgiving spirit. I would recommend shutting the door quickly on Satan by dealing quickly with your anger. Now, keep the door open for another moment if you're going to run into the door like I did when I was in seminary, but then shut it after you run through it, okay? Shut the door by dealing with your anger, by putting off sinful, dark, dirty anger towards other people. Proverbs 25, 28 says, a man without self-control is like a city wall. I'm sorry, like a city broken into and left without walls. So in the ancient cities, they had the walls to protect them from the enemies. They didn't have airplanes and helicopters and missiles to launch. They would just have to come on foot or in chariots. And so if you had the tall, strong city walls, you're safe. But a, a person who can't control him or herself can't control their anger. It's like an open city, like an unlocked door. Come on in, Satan. Come on in, enemies. Just come on in and have your way. Kids, do you like to go on uh, you know, slumber parties and sleepovers with your friends? It's like inviting Satan to come over for a sleepover. By being angry and saying, I'm not going to deal with this. I'm not going to make this right with my friends or my parents. We need to learn to control our anger. We need to learn to shut the door on that sort of thing. And learn from the true master our true Lord and King Jesus, how to master our anger. So let's look at the positive commandment here because we've looked at putting off the dark and the dirty and the devilish ways of anger, but let's look at putting on anger. It's kind of a surprising uh, thing we see next. It's a positively surprising command to put on anger. Now you might be saying, where does he say put on anger? I don't see that here. I see clearly put off, put off, put off. Like do not um, sin, do not let the sun go down on your anger, do not give the devil an opportunity, all that, but... It's assumed when he says, be angry and do not sin, that be angry is the command. Put on good anger. Put on godly anger. Put on righteous anger. Get good and angry. Get angry at the right things in the right ways at the right time. You know, why do you or I need a commandment to get angry? I mean, I get angry enough as this, is. Don't you? Do I really need God to tell me, be angry? I don't think so. He could have just said, stop being angry like that. But the The pattern, again, the the principle of our sanctification and change as Christians is you always have to put off something and put on something immediately in its place. So he says, put off dark and dirty and devilish anger and put on righteous anger in its place. Because you don't naturally have that in your heart. 90% of my anger, I can promise you, is not good, godly, holy anger. It's the type that gets overheated, like a car in the summertime. You know, it's just the engine is revving super hot. It's 95 degrees outside already, and I'm just boiling with anger. And you check the oil, you check the dipstick, that oil hasn't been changed for 20,000 miles. There's some dirty, nasty stuff inside. That's most of what my anger is. There's very rare opportunities and moments when I see a really clean, godly anger operating. And so he says, you have to put this on with the help of Jesus Christ and His Holy Spirit. Be angry. He says, and do not sin. Put on the character of God. When you think about God, in Exodus 34, verse 6, He teaches us about His own anger. Throughout the Old Testament, we we think of God, the God of the Old Testament, a lot of people think of Him as a a God of wrath, a God of anger, a God of judgment. And it's true, there's lots of judgment in the Old Testament, but there's also a lot of judgment and the wrath of God in the New Testament as well. But God says, from Old to New Testament, I'm the same. I never change. I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. And He says in Exodus 34, verse 6, I am slow to anger, abounding in love. And he says, I will punish sin, but I will also forgive sinners. God is slow to anger, but he's very angry at sin. And he will deal with it. And Jesus taught us in his own uh, ministry that he's angry at sin as well. But he's also merciful in the way that he deals with it. Think about Jesus in a few stories from the the Gospels. John chapter 2 and some other places in the Gospels. Jesus goes into the temple and expresses his anger over the greed Of the money changers. Do you remember that story? He takes these money changers who are selling animals in the temple for worship. And he takes a whip and he he whips and he flips tables. He drives the animals and the people out. And he says, according to the prophet, zeal for your house consumes me. That means I love the holiness of God my Father. And it just eats me up when I see people transgressing his house. There's anger, but it's righteous anger. It's a God-centered anger. What about the story of when Jesus healed the man with the withered hand? His hand was all cramped up in like a claw and he couldn't open it or use it. And it, it, Jesus came to heal the man and it says the religious um, spies, the, the secret police of the Jews, the, the Pharisees, the, these religious hypocrites, they are watching Jesus closely. What's he going to do? Is he going to heal the man on the Sabbath day? Because if he does, he's going down. We got him. We can nail him. We can charge him with this. And then he's... Going down. We don't like Jesus. We're not going to stand for this. And so they're watching him. And it says Jesus knowing their thoughts. Angry in his heart. It says, with anger, Jesus. Now listen to this. With anger, Jesus was grieved. Can you imagine those two things being together in your heart? With anger, he was grieved at their hardness of heart. So he had a soft heart. He had an angry heart at the same time. And he was grieved at their hardness of heart. Now, who are you and I in this story? We might be the withered hand man. We might be the Pharisees judging other people. We we have tendencies to do both. But in this story, Jesus comes to the broken person who had a right to be angry and say, people have abused me, made fun of me my whole life. They they haven't given me a job because I can't use my hand. They they don't even want me to be healed today because it's the Sabbath. Who are these people? They don't care about me. He could have been resentful and angry. Jesus came to this broken man and he healed and restored him into the image of God. One step closer to the image of God that he was always intended to be. These three words in this, this story are three words used in Ephesians 4, our main text today. Hardness of heart, anger, and grief. Remember? We have hard hearts. And we can't even think straight. We're so full of anger and passion. Uh, anger. Jesus says, have righteous anger like I have. I have. Put off the ungodly anger and put on righteous anger. And then the the word grief, we read, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Because when you have a hard heart towards God and other people, it grieves God's heart. So have a broken heart, a humble heart. Approach Him as the only God and the only King. And when you see the the sin around you, the disease around you, when you see the broken lives around you, have a broken heart for those people too. Get angry about injustice. Get angry about what makes people uh, live lives of pain. The third story I want to share from the Gospels is John 11, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. When Jesus saw Mary, the brother, uh, her brother was Lazarus, the man in the grave for four days. Mary was weeping at the tomb, the Jews were weeping at the tomb. And It says Jesus was deeply outraged in his spirit and greatly troubled. Deeply outraged in his spirit. He was angry. What was he angry about? Was he angry at Mary or the Jews? Was he angry at Lazarus? No, he was angry at death and sin in the world that causes death. He was angry at losing someone dear to him. Deeply outraged and troubled that this is how the world has become, because of sin. When we see Jesus, who is angry at greedy people and judgmental people, and he's just angry at sin and death in the world, we start seeing a clean anger, a perfect anger, a righteous anger. Like when you put fuel in your car, you can put the cheap stuff in there, which is what I usually do. Or you can put the high octane expensive stuff in there, which burns a lot cleaner. It doesn't leave that nasty gunk in your uh, in your pistons, in your engine. Fuel your anger with the high octane holy passion of God. If you say, God, I'm going to be angry only if it brings glory to you. I'm going to be angry only the things that break your heart. Not anything selfish anymore. If I find selfish anger, I'm going to put it off. I'm going to get rid of it. I'm going to kill it before it kills me. And I'm going to start looking into your heart, into your word, and saying what what turns your heart upside down? What grieves you? What deeply troubles you? That's what I want to trouble me. Because I want to put on godly anger. I want to burn that clean fuel in my heart, which won't leave a residue. It won't leave a, a nasty, bitter aftertaste in my life, in my heart, in my mouth. You guys know the bean Was vandalized this week. You know that, right? The bean, Cloud Gate. Chicago's mascot. The big metallic structure that reflects the city. This is the reflection of our very city. This is what we love. This is the bean. You look into it, everything's a little bit distorted, but it's close enough. It's a beautiful thing. And some gangbangers from 35th Street came and tagged it with graffiti this week. And the judge, they were caught, and the judge said to them, This offends me. This offends me, he said. Why should it offend him? He's not the artist that made it. But even just someone who is, you know, loves it. This judge says, your vandalism of this reflection of our city offends me. How much more do you think God, the judge of the universe, looks at us when we vandalize each other, when we dishonor his name, and he says, this offends me. I made you and everyone else in my image, and the way you disrespect them and get angry at them and tear them down, it offends me. You'll be judged for that. But then he gives us another option. He says, those of you that have offended me, that have sinned against me, those of you that have been angry at me and shaking your fist at me, I'm going to remake you into my image. I'm going to polish the reflection. I'm going to clean off the graffiti. I'm going to give you another chance to be like me, to be a clear reflection, not a distorted image or a blurry image or a, a trashed image. I'm going to let you see people who are made in my image. And and James chapter 3, verse 9 says, We curse people who are made in God's image and His likeness. He says, I'm going to allow you to, to repent of that sort of angry, nasty behavior. And I'm going to allow you to begin blessing people and forgiving them, just as I've done for you. I'm going to begin working in your life so that your zeal isn't just for selfish reasons and little petty things, but your zeal will be for my glory and my honor in the world. And my people and my house and the zeal for my house will consume you. It will just eat you up. And it will lead you to do productive things in the world. Paul finishes this section by saying, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Put off the bitterness in verse 31. Put off the wrath and the anger. Put off the clamor, just the loud noise. We just make a lot of noise sometimes. Put off the slander, those, those nasty words you say about people behind their backs or even to their face. Put all that off, all forms of malice and hatred all that angry stuff. Just put it off. And he says, be kind to one another. Put on kindness. Helpfulness. Tenderheartedness. We looked at this at our table talk last week. The word tenderhearted it means from the very bowels of your being. From your very gut. Just have compassion for people. Not being hardhearted anymore, but tenderhearted. Put on forgiveness. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. See, Jesus didn't just tell you to be angry in the right way. He didn't just show you, look how I got angry. I was righteous in my anger. He actually was righteously angered towards you and your sin. He was offended by your sin. And then he dealt with your sin on the cross. The Father placed your sin and mine upon the soul and body of Jesus Christ. He absorbed the anger of the Father to pay for our anger and our sin and selfishness. And then Jesus said, and then I forgave you. I took your sin away and I, I gave you tender mercies. I forgave you. I didn't just tell you to do it. I did it for you. So now he says, be imitators of God. Ephesians 5.1. As beloved children. He's just saying, act out who you are. Live out your identity. You are children. You're forgiven. You're love. Now, start forgiving others. Start loving others. Learn to put on righteous anger and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. I would just invite you to take your anger today, specific anger, specific people you're mad at, specific um, circumstances that you just secretly you are mad at God for. Real injustice that should cause you to be angry. Uh, terrorism, child abuse, um, s- widows and elderly people being scammed, that should make us angry. Sin should make us angry in every form. But we need to learn to deal with that anger, not in sinful ways. So take whatever your anger is now, whoever you're angry towards, and learn to do what Ephesians says, present it as an offering and sacrifice to God. Lay it on the altar now. Say, God, please deal with my heart. Deal with my anger. Deal with my irritations. Deal with the dirtiness and the darkness and the devilish things inside of me. And teach me to glorify you with my anger. Teach me to be a true Christian in my anger. Now, this is just part one of the anger sermon. There's a lot more we're going to say because this is an important subject. So next week, more nuts and bolts about anger. But for now, let's just present ourselves to God and ask him uh, in this classroom of of his word to teach us and and, and to lead us in all truth. Father, we thank you so much for um, helping us to see what anger is and that we should be at war against certain things. We should... Feel passion against certain things that are wrong in the world. But, but God, we get carried away and we don't know how to do this well. We, we tend towards always uh, sinning in a, in, a, in a devious, selfish way with our anger. So help us to, to put off those things, to put off the, the idol of self and, and selfish demands, and help us to take up the cross where we see uh, Jesus who paid for sin. Fully and completely and perfectly and justly. But then he he turned towards sinners and he forgave them and he showed them mercy and grace. Lord, teach us to be like that. Help us to put on the righteousness of Christ. To put on tenderheartedness and kindness and forgiveness and love. Help us to walk in love today. And as we present ourselves to you, Lord, change us, we pray. Transform us to do your good and your pleasing and your perfect will. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand as we prepare to sing this final song of worship as we dedicate ourselves to God.